This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, Welcome everyone, my name is Lise Kukkonen and this is Practitioner's Viewpoint. In this series of podcasts, I will be interviewing practitioners from different fields on how they see the measurement of sedentary behavior and physical activity. Today, I have the honor to introduce my guest, Dr. Amy Bentham. Dr. Bentham is a doctor of public health from Harvard School of Public Health. Her doctoral research focused on physician exercise prescription and patient exercise behavior change. She is now the CEO and founder of Move to Live More, a research and consulting firm working at the intersection of healthcare, fitness, and communities. Its mission is to help people live longer, healthier, and more active lives. So in this episode today, we are going to ask why is it so difficult to get the message about healthy lifestyle from healthcare providers to clients, and what could be done better? Is it important that our physicians discuss the topics of physical activity and healthy behavior with their patients? In the end, we will get to hear Amy's thoughts about activity measurement, sedentary behavior, and daily physical activity. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am happy to introduce Dr. Amy Bentham. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much, Lise. It's such a pleasure to be on the show. So, Amy, let's start with your professional background. How did all the roads lead to this point, and what is your story? Sure, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about my journey to this point. So this point that I'm at is CEO and founder of Move to Live More. And I really started Move to Live More because I wanted to work to integrate three sectors, healthcare, health and fitness, and communities. And I didn't see that anyone else was really working to integrate those three sectors maybe two, but not all three. And so my background and my journey to this point is really in the health and fitness sector. I started 25 years ago as a fitness professional, first as a group exercise instructor, then as a personal trainer. I'm now also a certified health coach. And so I spent years doing that and I also spent a little over a decade working at the Health and Fitness Trade Association, or URSA, the International Health Racket and Sports Club Association. And so when I was at URSA, I was advocating on behalf of the health and fitness industry, growing, promoting, and protecting the industry. And I left URSA because I wanted to do more to reach people who weren't currently being served by the health and fitness industry. And so I went back full-time to school mid-career to get my doctor of public health. And I decided on a doctor of public health because it is both a public health degree, but a leadership training and practitioner degree. So not so much focused on research, although I am a researcher, but very practice focused and leadership focused. 
And I chose public health because I wanted to be able to understand and speak public health when I was working to integrate health and fitness with healthcare. And that was really my first thought. And while I was doing my Doctor of Public Health, I really took two paths. One was the doctoral research that you mentioned, which was integrating healthcare and health and fitness, where I was researching to what extent physicians counsel their patients on physical activity, to what extent they prescribe physical activity, to what extent they refer their patients out to community-based exercise facilities and professionals. And so there I was focused on the integration of healthcare and health and fitness. At the same time, I was also focusing on integration of healthcare and communities. And I did my doctoral field work out with a health system in Utah. And there I was working on understanding unmet health and social needs and integrating healthcare and social service delivery to improve health outcomes and decrease healthcare spending. And so there I was focused on that healthcare communities. Uh, path. And so bringing all three together with Move to Live More, and, and really the, the mission and vision of Move to Live More is to help people live healthier, longer, more active lives. And that's my company's mission and vision. And that's my personal passion. And that's really what I focus on doing, which is helping get more people moving. I think you have a great background for doing what you do because as of coming from uh, the fitness uh, fitness side, so I'm just going to ask uh, if you'd had the same knowledge you have now back at the time when you were in the fitness industry. So ha what have you had you done differently or like can you see now your own maybe barriers that you had before or can you do you have any comments on that? I think that the path that I took led me exactly to where I am now. And I think that I wouldn't have recognized the extent to which we needed to build bridges between healthcare, health and fitness and communities if I hadn't had the experience I had at URSA when I was working to, to grow and promote the industry. There's one more piece to the journey that, that I think was critical to my thinking and my decision to go back to get a doctor of public health. And that was my work with the URSA Foundation, which is the educational and philanthropic arm of the trade association. And there I was working to help health clubs open their doors to people living with chronic disease, injury, and disability. And it was through that work that I really recognized the extent to which the health and fitness industry does not reach the people who need its programming and services the most. It only reaches about 20% of the population and has only reached 20% of the population for the last several decades. And so I wanted to have more of an impact on broad-based population health, community health. And so 
of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. If I could go back and and do more, but I think I was I was very much working on the individual and small group level when I was working as a as a fitness professional, and and then doing more on behalf of the industry. And now I feel like I'm doing more on behalf of populations to try to get more and more and more people active. Ah, that's that's great. So, is it just what you mentioned? Uh, is that where you have helped 150 million people to get physically active? Active. I I think I read that about about your journey. Yeah, that that's a big number. Uh, not single handedly. That's actually the that's actually the that number is the reach of the health and fitness industry. Okay. And so, if we think that one sector. The health and fitness sector is reaching 150 million people. Imagine, and, and, and my work to, to help do that was the over a decade I spent at URSA really working on programming and services to get people more active. So if just one sector has that reach, imagine what we could do if we brought in many sectors and exactly. So, and so that again brings me back to my mission and vision for my company, which is to knock down silos between sectors and address physical inactivity and chronic disease through innovation and through cross-sector collaboration. And yeah. now, imagine how we move the dial on physical inactivity. Yeah, I totally agree. We have so much more that we could do. So um, just like I know you've done research about uh, physical activity and so um, how is it in the in the US? I guess you have done your research in, in the US. So how big difference there is, if any, in between different um, socioeconomic groups when it comes to physical activity So uh, or, or other different like ethnical backgrounds, so on? Yeah, that's a great question. We as Americans, certainly as, as, as a population as a whole, we're not doing very well at meeting our national guidelines. I think it's about 23% are meeting the national physical activity guidelines for both strength training and aerobic activities. And there are certainly disparities by socioeconomic status and racial and ethnic and by race and ethnicity and it's interesting as students and and my concentrations were around uh, obesity epidemiology and prevention and health communication so as a student i took many 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 classes on obesity prevention. And it felt like almost every lecture started with the map of the United States showing the obesity prevalence several decades ago. And then year by year, they would do a time lapse showing the extent to which the, the prevalence has increased. And I think we're about, you know, over two thirds overweight and obese. And I would say that we're paying closer and closer attention to physical inactivity. And the, the CDC started publishing maps 
not only on obesity prevalence, but also on physical inactivity prevalence. And for the very first time in 2020, they published physical inactivity prevalence maps by race and ethnicity. So it shows in, in technicolor the, the disparities by race and ethnicity and by socioeconomic status. And I actually published a paper last year with a wonderful group of co-authors on addressing barriers to physical inactivity uh, among underserved populations. And, and our research there showed that um, Latino and Blacks have significantly higher prevalence of physical inactivity than whites. So the numbers are about 32% and 30% versus that 23% for whites, which the population as a whole. So really significant disparities. And that is and that is very much tied to the significant disparities in health outcomes that we see in communities of color. So we have a clear need to address these disparities through targeted interventions, multi-level interventions, working with interdisciplinary teams. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S dot Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. Yeah, definitely, because there's many factors uh, that influence uh, our behavior, I guess, and I, our acting, definitely, yeah. Um, so... Um, you have also studied uh, how much physicians or like medical doctors, maybe we have a lot of listeners from Europe, so the physician is as medical doctor, <laughs> prescribe exercise as medicine to their patients. And you try to actually understand physicians. Um, so what did you find out about their thoughts about health clubs and personal trainers, maybe, and all like prescribing physical, physical activity? Yeah, and, and as a nod to your listeners in the Europe, in Europe, I spent 10 months as a whole doing my doctoral research. And 
so much in the literature, so much in the evidence base comes out of exercise referral schemes, networks, physical activity schemes in Europe. And some of the best examples are from the UK, from Sweden. Uh, I also looked at the green prescriptions in New Zealand. And there's very little in the evidence base from the United States. Okay, so let's hear what you found. <laughs> so, so let's let's dive in there. So I spent 10 months total and my study site was a New England-based healthcare system that had had an exercise referral network in place for over a decade. And when I was researching them at the time, they did about 35 exercise referrals a week. And I chose this exercise referral network, one, because it existed. And, and as we've discussed, it's, it's rare and unusual, but also because physicians in the network referred both inside the healthcare system as well as outside. So if they were referring inside the healthcare system, they would refer to a hospital-affiliated health and fitness center. And if they referred outside, they would refer to either independent fitness professionals or to community-based health and fitness centers and the fitness professionals that, that worked there. So I was able to look at the comfort level in physicians, in medical doctors, referring to a hospital-affiliated health and fitness center versus their comfort level in referring to a community-based health and fitness center. And I found that there was a significant difference in mean comfort level in referring inside versus outside. And, and it was significant. It was about 4.36 on a scale of, of where five is very comfortable, four is comfortable, and three is neutral. So it was 4.36 for within the network, and it was 3.19, closer to neutral, outside. And, and so I thought... That's a pretty significant difference in comfort level, which had significant implications for the physician practices. So I found that 55% of physicians would refer within the healthcare system, and only about 22% would refer to community-based health and fitness professionals. And so I thought, how do we address this difference in trust, difference in comfort, which, which I termed the trust gap? And so I actually put together a 10-step roadmap that would help health and fitness centers, help fitness professionals become trusted community-based resources where physicians would refer their patients. So uh, did you have anything else you wanted to? Yeah, just to add on, the 10-step the roadmap really, really focuses on increasing awareness on the part of physicians 
and their confidence in community-based health and fitness centers and professionals and, and builds their trust in the ability of these fitness professionals to take good care of their patients. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think. I'm I'm a physiotherapist myself, and so so I'm just thinking that it's probably as a physician you need to really trust that if you send this person who might have different uh, diseases or conditions, and when you send them to a professional that they know how to you know how to deal with that <laughs> patient or client. So I guess it's all about trust. I I would think so, but. Uh, were there any other factors that um, were predicting whether a physician chooses to consult their patients about physical activity or refer? What what else did you find out? Yes, there were absolutely. And I looked at those as facilitators of, of counseling, prescribing, and referring. And Certainly a facilitator was reimbursement and subsidies, and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about cost as a barrier. And with the United States healthcare system, you mentioned you were a physiotherapist. Physicians mentioned that cost and concerns about cost to their patients was a barrier to their referring to a health and fitness professional and they were much more likely to refer to a, a physiotherapist where there was allowance for, for insurance reimbursement. And so one of my recommendations in this 10-step roadmap for fitness professionals was to do more to partner with physiotherapists. And so perhaps a physician would refer to a physiotherapist for a certain number of sessions, and then they were thinking long-term, well, what's the warm handoff after those sessions are done? Would it be possible to then refer again or, or, or have a pipeline where the patient could then move into a longer-term exercise program with a fitness professional or could move into um, a membership at a health and fitness center where they would have the equipment and infrastructure expertise from fitness professionals and, and support to continue their exercise programming. So it became more of a, of a long-term habit and, and being someone who focuses so much on exercise behavior change, to what extent do we, do we have short-term versus long-term behavior change? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a great practice to maybe to refer to a physical therapist who gets it started. And then after um, you can refer again to to a health center or fitness center. That's um, what we are trying to do quite often, actually. Yeah, I hope usually it goes well, but uh, it needs trust from both sides. So we are going to have a little break now. Thank you, Amy, and all our listeners. We'll be back soon for the second part of our podcast. And in the second part, we'll discuss sedentary behavior, physical activity, and good practices to work with patients. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. 
thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.